from the Rap and PE. I'm your host, Stephen Buller. This is the place where we explore precarity, pedagogy, and physical education. This podcast is dedicated to physical educators of the future, past, and present. Episode 6, Part B, continues with Larry Schwartz from Ukiah, California. And we're going to continue our conversation. And here we go. Wait for the beat. Where do you teach? You mentioned Ukiah. It's two hours north of San Francisco. Like, what are the demographics, like facilities, situations? What's it like to teach Ukiah? Um, well, the, the, the school site that I'm at um, is actually the old high school, uh, the old Ukiah High School. So it's, um, you know, facility-wise, we're very fortunate. Um, you know, there's three, three and a half PE teachers um, that I work with at Palmolita. Um, and generally there's three of us that are essentially all full-time PE teachers. And we have one PE teacher who is a math guy, um, who teaches a couple of PE periods a day. Um, and so we generally, you know, we have enough space and we have like a, you know, we have a rotating schedule. So we have our main gym, we have a weight room, which is essentially like, um, we have like, uh, I think there's like seven, seven machines, three rows of seven machines. So we've got enough for kids to kind of go in there. You know, they're essentially like Cybex type machines, but they're, you know, they're, they're specific to, um, you know, junior high school kids to use, to learn how to, to do resistance training. Um, mm-hmm. and then we've got stationary bikes in there and then we have a mat room. So, you know, cause we do have a, a, a middle school wrestling team as well. So we have a mat room that we have. It's a pretty spacious area. So even with 45 plus kids, we can fit everybody in there and still have a pretty good time. Um, so generally speaking, we, you know, we'll, we'll rotate a schedule. You know, if you're in the gym, you're in the gym, you know, that's sort of the, the space you've got. And that's a pretty big gym. Um, but if we have, you know, if we have the fitness lab, we can, you know, we might be on the blacktop. Um, and then if we're in the, in the mat room, we might be on the, down on the track. So we might share space. We have an inside space and an outdoor space to, um, you know, to leverage that. So, um, you know, so Palmolita, I think I mentioned it's about 800 students at the school, you know, give or take, um, depending on the number of sixth grade classes that might come in. But on, on, I think on average, it's about 800 students. And, you know, as you know, you know, PE teachers generally see all the students you know, mm-hmm. with the exception of a few that, you know, you know, maybe not, and I'd be willing to guess that there might be, you know, maybe 40 to 50 kids that we don't actually see or even get a chance to know for whatever reason. Um, you know, we definitely have, a, it's a large, low socioeconomic status community, um, a lot of free or reduced lunch. Um, and in fact, I want to say in the last couple of years, our district were, had received, a, you know, grant for you know, all kids, regardless of income would, could receive, you know, free, free lunch, you know, essentially. So they could, you know, get a breakfast or, and a lunch, uh, which is really kind of cool. Um, you know, that we, you know, that we had, we're able to offer that. And, um, you know, with rec- we recently, you know, as you can imagine, I mean, we're, you know, we're passing out, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of lunches, you know, once a week now for our, our, our kids. So they're still getting, that option for food. So, um, you know, demographic wise, it's, it's very low. Um, you know, and I think I, I mentioned before we were even talking that, you know, Mendocino County is mm-hmm. one of their largest, um, economic <laughs> components is, you know, marijuana, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's, you know, marijuana and, um, agriculture. Those are some really big ones. So we have a lot of migrant workers that come up to the area. And so a lot of our students are potentially first generation students that, you know, are, you know, some of their parents may or may not have, you know, education mm-hmm. past third or fourth grade. Um, you know, they, a lot of students that are English language learners, um, you know, but that's just a big part of California, though, too. I mean, that's part of our, you know, our teaching credential program is to, you know, ensure that teachers are, you know, taught how to, you know, help and support 
English language learners. So, um, you know, it's, it's a semi diverse in that sense. I mean, you know, but I think ultimately we have a pretty large Hispanic population, which I know unlike where you're at, you know, you might have a large African-American population mm -hmm. predominantly. Yeah. Philadelphia um, is really high percentage. That's actually the majority in the city. Okay. Okay. And we'll find yeah, out. Yeah. You said that yeah, the minority is the, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of, um, of Ukiah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything, anything else to that. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that kind of pretty much hits it. Um, you know, we've got, I can't remember the number of schools we've, um, we've mm -hmm. got a, um, we've got a charter high school that, um, you know, that serves, you know, not a whole lot, but they serve enough of the students, some overflow. We do have a, I say, should say we have a continuation high school, like a, it's called South Valley. So some students that are struggling at the traditional mm -hmm. high school have an opportunity to still, you know, get a diploma and graduate. Um, you know, we have, uh, my daughter goes to a Waldorf school. It's a public charter school, not mm -hmm. part of the school district, but it's, um, uh, it's still one of the, the, the few, we have a private, couple of private schools, one Catholic, uh, private school. Uh, we have a, uh, uh, I guess the original charter school that my daughter goes to is, is a, is a private school, um, out in Calpala, which is a few miles outside of Ukiah city limits and um, we've got a number of elementary schools we've got two is it, yeah two middle schools so there's eagle peak out in redwood valleys i mentioned and then palmolita so we serve um you know all the the fifth graders sixth graders seventh graders eighth graders but some of our middle or some of our elementary schools actually have a five six combo class so um you know the the elementary teachers are you know kind of adapting their PE curriculum to fit sort of some, some middle school standards as well um, at the elementary level. And then the high school, of course, is predominantly just high school based nine through 12th grade. Interesting. That's definitely unique having almost like a, I guess around here we would, or at least from what I'm familiar with, like a reformation high school or like for the alternative. Mm. Um, at least that was my experience when I, was in New York city in Harlem. They had a Harlem Renaissance. I think huh. that's what it was called. It was like a reformation high school, but that was for kids oh, up see. to, I think there were kids like up to 28 or, or not kids, but adults. Oh, okay. Wow. Was unique. Yeah. I mean, we do have an adult school too. I forgot that we do have a, you know, for kid for, um, you know, kids who didn't weren't successful getting their high school diploma can go back and get their GED. Um, you know, when I was coaching, um, at the college, the community college, we actually had a couple of, you know, first generation, um, community college students who, um, went through that process to get their GED, which was really kind of a cool thing, you know, not just for them and their families, but just kind of cool to sort of see, you know, their determination and their perseverance ultimately. Mm -hmm. No, I can def, I, well, I respect the idea of having all those extra types of schools and ways for people to get their credentials, the GEDs, mm -hmm. the diplomas. That's very important. Mm -hmm. From my experience in Philadelphia, I'm not up to par on a lot of that. It seems like they'll have night classes right? for some high schoolers. They'll be able to go, but it's not necessarily a dedicated school. It's just teachers teaching it from mm -hmm. like 4.30 to 8.30 during oh, certain I parts see. of the year. So Got it's not it. necessarily like an actual school. It's just, you know, sign up and you can get in, which is oh, pretty interesting in itself. One yeah. thing that you did mention about like the credentialing with, uh -huh. in regards to working with students that are from diverse backgrounds, like in your example with immigrants, because I know that's a mm -hmm. huge percentage of, I don't want to say huge, but it's a large percentage of students. It's not like 1%, like in California, Pennsylvania has that and like Chester County outside of Philadelphia, um, where you do have migrant workers coming in with kids, like how did okay. your program prep you? Like just, just to help so, some yeah. people that didn't get that experience, like what would you recommend to them? Like how to implement that into teaching? Well, it's, well, that's really interesting. Cause so 
my credential program. So I have, so I have my master's degree um, and I have all but my dissertation and a PhD program. And so I had to go back and get a credential to teach. And clearly it was sort of like, you know, they allow us to come in with obviously with enough um, education and background to, Mm -hmm. to teach as an intern and work towards getting a credential. Um, And so for me, it was like uh, looking at programs. It's like, okay, so I'm already got student loans for my master's and my doctorate program. You know, so do I want to go in further debt to get a credential um, that I know pays off in other ways than financially? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I had to think about the future of, of myself and my, and my family. And so I was looking at programs and a lot of the programs in California are hybrid kinds of programs mm-hmm. where there's not one that's fully online. Um, and if it, and if it, even if they are fully online, there's still a residency component to it. And so and they're expensive, you know, so mm-hmm. not only are you going to have to put forth anywhere between 13 to $22,000 to get through a credential program, you know, so I found an option that was out of University of uh, Western Florida, it's a teacher ready program. And mm-hmm. so I have my credential. I, in fact, I have a credential in Florida and California. And that program was a, a third of the cost. And it had reciprocity to California. Nice. Now, my only caveat to that is that it's clear that there are certain components, bureaucracy issues that happen along the way that I can imagine all the listeners can, are probably shaking their head that, yeah, it's, it, it was a process for me. You know, I was really racking my brain and really nervous about ultimately, was I going to have a job come, you know, after my second year because it was I started later than I wanted to because of mm-hmm. other opportunities that that arose um, within the district but um, so my my credential program while it it helped t- to recognize um, the diversity of students you might have in your class it wasn't specific to um, English language learners um, mm-hmm. and so California requires um, it's the CTEL um, which is the California Teaching English Language Learners Exam. I think that's what it's called. I don't know if if that's exactly right, but it's a, it's a, it's essentially because I didn't get that in my credential program because my my credential program was from out of state. But all California credentialing programs have that embedded in their programs. Okay. So you become essentially any program in California that you um, that you take or that you go through will have that embedded. Um, so I'm currently in the process of finishing up those, um, you know, those requirements, but in all, um, you know, essentially I have my preliminary credential, um, at this point. So I'm just sort of filling that out. But so this is, it's, it's really geared towards working, um, teaching English language learners and the different methods of doing it from instruction to assessment, to culture and inclusion, to all the diversity components that you might be faced with. Cause again, it may not be, you know, uh, a Hispanic family you deal with, or, you know, somebody that's from Mexico, you know, there's, we have a lot of, um, you know, Chinese Americans in California as well. Um, so it may not be specific to that, to one particular English language learner. So, but it's English language learners as a whole um, is, is sort of what I'm understanding. And, ways to engage the students in various methods of teaching, um, you know, the, the different, you know, levels, the scaffolding that happens in regular classrooms and sort of how do you scaffold them to, you know, if your class has, you know, the small, you're doing small group work or the think pair share, that kind of stuff. It's all stuff that I think we've all are familiar with as teachers and educators, but it's really geared towards, you know, understanding you know how english language learners kind of operate mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis and again going back to that piece of any student for that matter is just that comfort level that they have you know and where they're at on the spectrum of of understanding english and speaking english and you know you know because they're they may only speak their native language at home so yeah that's i had a little bit of experience with that at the charter school i was at Okay, um, for the ESOL department and the ELL, that mm-hmm. was very interesting because we would have kids come from Africa. You would have kids come from Mexico. Wow, it wasn't a huge 
department, but it was still big enough and it was so diversified, even though there was only like 10 kids. We had kids come from like Syria, different parts of the wow. Middle East. So they were all on different like pages and just trying to accommodate to them in the classroom would was so difficult. Sure. Especially sure. with, I felt like I was never prepped for that college, especially when you're teaching a health class in high school. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Because there's, again, there's a lot of stuff that culturally that a lot of our students that are non-native English speakers, you know, you have to deal with and you have mm -hmm. to understand. And, you know, it's, there's, there's a reason why, for example, you know, there's a reason why the parents didn't come to your open house or your back to school night. Well, because they're still working, mm -hmm. you know, Sounds and there's a reason. Yeah. You know, so there's all these little components and it goes back to what we've talked about already is every student has a story. Every family has a story. And, you know, we can't assume based on what we what we think is going on until we really know what's going on. You know, can we make any kind of a, a decision around, you know, what's going on with the student or this family? And, you know, sometimes it's not a matter of them not wanting to be engaged in their students' educational process. It's just, they just don't know how to, because mm -hmm. they didn't have that. That's you know? definitely true. Um, there were two girls, they were both came from, I wish I remembered. I had them like, was that like two or three, probably closer to three years now, mm -hmm. but they came over from Africa and their parents didn't receive any formal education from what they told me. They could speak right. English pretty well, but it was not their primary language. Uh -huh. And it was so interesting how dedicated they were to learning that they literally were just dead set focused it was almost awkward because that's not how my standard student was at that time. Sure. They were definitely didn't have the same enthusiasm, enthusiasm for education just because of their situations within the neighborhood, not having quality education because right. of so many of the factors that lead to that historically, right. like great white flight, the economies like jobs and how schools almost are, for some populations are viewed as places of like assimilation. Like I'll, like I talked about in another pod podcast um, with some colleagues, uh, Risto, Sarah Flory and Zach. And just for some people, for some groups, school isn't important. Like they right. don't value it because it doesn't value them. Right. 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 I mean, they, they got they, left I mean, behind. Yeah, no. And there's, there's a reason why, you know, I, you know, as part of, you know, my credential is I have to have that because of all the laws that are, you know, have been put in place because of the, the lawsuits around, you know, uh, the exclusivity of education mm -hmm. and immigrants coming here and not feeling as though that they're part of the process when they really are and mm -hmm. not getting recognized as the important cog in the, in the wheel of, of the educational journey that, all of us are taking you know we were you know kind of shooting the breeze before that around you know the history of, of where you're at you know there's so much history there that you don't we don't learn about in school no nope. you know like, and especially locally which is yeah. depressing yeah you don't learn your local Absolutely. history and it's it's philadelphia it's <laughs> there almost every block you walk on there's some component history yeah yeah i yeah i mean i've only been there once twice maybe and you know, like I told you, it was like, you know, running around the streets of Philadelphia, you know, just thinking that my, my shoes and, um, you know, my sights were set on just so much history and then going out to graduate school in Massachusetts and thinking, good God, you know, it's like, you want to talk about history. I mean, you know, I mean, Massachusetts was kind of where it was at. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, you're right. It's, just in our own little small communities, there's a lot of history. I mean, just even in local Ukiah, Mendocino County, there's a lot of history here. Not nearly as old as Philadelphia or Massachusetts, but, um, you know, it has its, has its history. Yeah, each, each community has its own history, whether it's only recent or decades, centuries ago. Right. And figuring out how to infuse that's kind yeah, of difficult. And 
But it's meaningful though, because like your example with a lot of the migrant workers and you're having ELL students and that's their history. Mm -hmm. So like incorporating a lot of that into your curriculum and just figuring out how to educate or help them learn based on like what they need is very important, which brings me to my next question. So what is, what does your curriculum look like? Like what, 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 what do you want to try to do with it? Like what's your goal? Cause I know curriculum is so broad from school to school, but a lot of times I feel like we all try to copy too much. Yeah, I mean, and that is the 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 kind of cool, um, the, the kind of cool stuff about that is that there is so much that we share, and I think a lot of disciplines share. I mean, there doesn't seem to be sort of one particular um, person that's like, no, I'm not going to share this because you know I want to be the keeper of all this knowledge. It's mm-hmm. you know, I think for me, um, you know, I I came at it again from a different perspective and a different background not the formalized teaching of stuff because you know there's definitely a difference between coaching and teaching right i mean Mm -hmm. coaching kids want to be there hopefully and teaching kids have to be there Mm -hmm. you know so it was a mindset 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 shift for me as an educator to say okay i can't just go about this like i would if i was coaching a bunch of kids while i can integrate and pepper that in from a motivational component and sort of just a you know Um, but ultimately it's like, okay, so I got to look at these standards and, you know, the national standards and the state of California standards are, you know, fairly in line, you know, but ultimately it's like, how am I going to take these standards and try and integrate them? And so I was researching, um, you know, the different standards and thinking, okay, you know, where do I want to focus? You know, while it's important, yeah, to understand how to kick and throw and all that really, really great skillful stuff. Ultimately it's like, I got to get to know my students, you know, and when you've got large class sizes, that can be challenging, you know, and at the same time, it's, I've also kind of broken it up. Like I have a third of my students that are like eager and ready to go. I have a third of my students on the, on the other end that are like, they don't even want to be there. They don't care. And then I have that middle third where they're sort of right on the fence. They could Mm -hmm. really, really love it, or they could really just sort of leave it. And so, you know, I tend to sort of try to look at, from a curriculum standpoint, how I can engage the most out of all of my students and how can I try to individualize it in such a way that I can, I can recognize where students are and meet Mm -hmm. them where they're at and allow them to sort of build upon where they're at. And that's the conversation I have. It's like, so if we're, you know, if we're like, like if we're running the the mile or doing the pacer test, for example, you know, I'm just going to throw that out there. Just, you know, kids like, oh, well, you know, what's, what do I have to do to get an A? Well, where are you at right now? Let's go from there. You know, uh, well, you know, I'm, I think I, last time I did it, I did 17. Okay, well, let's try to do 18 or 19, you know, let's, let's try to move up, you know, and, and then you can start to see where they're engaging. It's like, you recognize that like, yeah, here's, here's sort of the averages that you should be at age-wise or grade-wise, but not every student is going to be there. And I don't expect you to be at this level if you've never been at a level below or, or, you know, even farther below that. And if you're well above that standard, then you've got to challenge yourself based on what motivates you to keep going after you've met or exceeded where you were as, you know, when you went out the first time. So you have that varying ability piece. And then it's like, so the, the, for me, the, the curriculum is just sort of based around getting to know my students, you know, spending the first couple of months going, okay, what, you know, who are you? What are you about? You know, what is your interest? You know, we, as a, as a department, we decided that we were going to put together a, like a 360 assessment of our students and asking questions about them and a real simple Google form that they could fill out. And it gave us a really great, um, you know, set of information that we can go back through and say, okay, well, you know, this particular group of students in, in this period, like there's a large, um, you know, wanting to learn this activity. Okay. Mm -hmm. So with that activity, can I build upon, you know, but this, this period likes this activity. It was mentioned in the other periods, but it's like, okay, so then you're starting to kind of prioritize, you know, based on, 
you know, what the interests are of the students, then also recognizing that, okay, it's important that we also teach you about the physical side of, of PE too. It's like, okay, so we're going to talk about muscular strength and endurance. We're going to talk about aerobic and we're going to talk about flexibility. We're going to talk about the fit principles and we're going to kind of pepper this all in so that we can introduce it in such a way that this is our why. This is why this is important. This is why this activity can be applied to the fit principles. This is why this activity can be applied to sort of your muscular strength and endurance, your, you know, your flexibility, your aerobic capacity, all that stuff. Like this all sort of builds into one another and sort of creates this real nice continuum of literacy over the course of the year, if not through the course of your time, you know, at Palmolita. And so I think that's been really great because, you know, the, my two colleagues, while younger than I, it's like I learned so much from them because they're coming at it from a very different perspective because mm-hmm. they both went to CS, different, two different CSUs in California. One was at Humboldt State. The other one was at San Francisco State and two very different, right? So you've got a, a very suburban component and a very rural component, mm-hmm. right, from Humboldt to San Francisco. And, you know, their curriculum, while it may have been very similar, um, in the in the set of you know what they learned, how they uh-huh. apply it based on their own personal experiences has really taught me to become a better teacher too to be again again that openness that growth minded of like you know yeah, I might be twelve years older than them, but I learned so much from them because they're teaching me you know different ways in which you know I can engage my students and you know and I think we have we make such a good team and then even my um the halftime PE teacher, the, our, um, our colleague, who's a math guy and, uh, and teaches a couple of classes. He was my, my, he was kind of my credential mentor, my bits of mentor as they, they call it. And so I really got to know him too. And he comes at it from a, from a very different side of the academic mm-hmm. house from a math side too. So it's like that, again, that cross curricular piece that I'm also getting engaged in, which I think as PE teachers, I think it's important for us to, recognize that again our our education is so vast in terms of kinesiology ultimately is really what the foundation of physical education is right so we've got the history the math the science the Mm -hmm. psychology and philosophy components of that stuff and so like so we have sort of a broad understanding of a lot of that stuff and so how can we integrate that into our classes and our curriculum and so ultimately for me i look at my curriculum as as sort of like a default for me to fall back on, but, and a guide, but at the same time, I'm allowing my students to, you know, to really guide me and what their interests are, you know, and I try to still stay true to sort of like, yeah, you know, I recognized this class or one of the classes had, you know, an interest in doing this, you know, I think we're going to kind of try to, you know, try a lot of different stuff throughout the school year and be open to that. I love that. That's very student centered and that's, definitely reaches back to to that vision statement that it's student-centered and you're putting students to work helping you design the curriculum Mm -hmm. really ironic because i just had a conversation about a week ago where i believe it was risto who went on towards the end of the podcast describing that at the beginning of the year we should be asking students to reflect the beginning the middle of a quarter at the end of a quarter and then Mm -hmm. it's just that constant cycle of having the students involved and letting them kind of help you use your expertise because realistically physical education is part of that conglomerate word of kinesiology like we are responsible (laughs) and we have so much knowledge that right it's for me sometimes i feel it's very difficult to focus on one area right yes at it Right, because we have great surface level knowledge across it, and definitely right. there's some depth and bread to it. But sometimes you just need help, and the students know best of what they want to do. And yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a really good, really good point. Yeah, it's you know, our you know, I think I like that idea of the continuous assessment. You know, whether it's you know a formative assessment of some sort where you're just recognizing and allowing the students to kind of explore you know, what, you know, what they liked or what they want to potentially do. And, you know, and I remember learning a very valuable sort of expression in graduate school. It was sort of the good, better, how model, you know, what worked well, 
what could be better and how could we make it better? You know, so it's like twisting the words a little bit. So like, what did you really like about it? What sort of areas of improvement could we make it a little bit better? And then how can we do this together? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's again that allowing the students, it's like, I don't want to, like, I, I have a lot of answers, but that's not my job is to give them the answers. My job is as an educator is to help them to explore that they can also seek out those, those answers. They can find ways. I'm going to help them. I'm not going to just give them the answer. You know, like they, they have that ability within themselves to really, you know, become little researchers, you know, Mm -hmm. that's very true. That's hopefully where my curriculum takes a twist next year. Now that I'm getting back into that elementary mindset that I haven't been in for like seven years. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'll be curious to follow along with the, how that goes for you. Cause that's, that would be going like teaching college and then going down to middle school. Yeah. You know, it's kind of that big jump where you're kind of missing that sort of in between. Mm-hmm. that middle school for you and high school for, you know, so that was again, teaching, you know, teaching at the, the college level and then going into middle school. Mm-hmm. I knew that I didn't want to teach high school. I knew that that was not where I would, could make the biggest impact or at least what I feel I can make the biggest impact. Yeah. That reminds me of two things. The one Risto his his thing that he would use would be stop, continue, start. So what do you want me to stop doing that's not making this environment the best for you to learn in? What do you want me to start doing to make it a better environment to learn in? And then the last one, what do you want me to continue doing? Got it. I thought that one was great. I wish I had that in my back pocket. Now my question to you is, we talked a little little bit about the teaching styles. What teaching style do you try to infuse into your lessons? I know there's like, you can go on to teacher centric, student centric. And I know I usually reference Mostens, which is like the style A, B, C, D. Right, 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 right. Do you have, do you have like a preference or like what style fits you? I definitely think for me, it's, it's on a spectrum, the style of teaching, depending on who I'm dealing with. Because I think there definitely are students whereby one particular style isn't going to fit. And again, that's where a big part of, I think, that I really attempt to do in my classes is really get to know my students on a personal level to find out what makes them tick. You know, do they, are they putting up a facade Mm -hmm. because that's just what they do at home because they have a, maybe a, a, a parent who's very authoritative, you know, that they're constantly barking orders at them, you Mm -hmm. know, so they look at teachers. Sometimes, you know, students will look at teachers as sort of the dictators of curriculum, the the dictators of what they're trying to do. And a lot of students, and I found this to be true over the last couple of years, it's like, what do you mean I get to choose? Well, that's exactly what I mean. You get to kind of help me decide where we're going to go with this. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is important that, yeah, you know, you're going to find yourself in some situations where that may not be the case. And you'll recognize that, hopefully recognize that when, you know, you get into a position that, you know, that you may not have as many options, but part of what I'm, my goal of teaching is to try to engage you in the decision-making process as early as possible so that you feel as though that you have a voice in what we're doing it allows me to sort of develop a kind of a style and a method in each of my classes Mm -hmm. the way i engage each of my classes because you know the six or the seven periods that i have a day every every period's different Mm -hmm. you know every period has its own culture its own climate its own set of standards and grade levels you know Um, you know, mainly teaching eighth graders, but I have sixth and seventh graders as well. And each one, it's like, I can still teach the same thing, but I have to teach it differently. And I allow my students to kind of help guide that, you know, uh, you know, how I'm teaching it. And, you know, and I think maybe sometimes my biggest strength is allowing students some freedom and autonomy, but that's also an area of development that I need to really sort of take a step back and say, okay, Maybe I gave them too much 
freedom and flexibility. Mm -hmm. It's that old saying, you know, you give them an inch, they take a mile. And sometimes that is the case. And sometimes you do lose students, but then at the same time, you're, you know, finding a way to draw them back in, you know, so that's, I think my challenge, you know, as a teacher is to sort of find a good balance in that. And again, it's going to be a struggle from year to year because, you know, students are growing and stretching through the creation of new knowledge and personal development and emotional development and social development. And so it's, you know, it's, it's educators, we have a really difficult task sometimes to really engage our students in a way that, you know, is, you know, most effective for them and, mm -hmm. you know, as a group too. So um, I can't really specifically say that one style or the other, but I think I try to balance between the teacher center, um, you know, whether it's, I, I try to really steer clear of the A, you know, the command style, you know, that there are times where for me, I, I tell all my classes and this goes back to sort of, um, you know, just my philosophy too. It's like, I tell my students that they have three rights as students. They have the right to feel safe. They have a right to learn and they have a right to have fun. And if those, any of those three rights are being taken away by a, by a group of students or a student, then that's where I have to intervene. And that's where maybe the command style for me comes in, mm -hmm. um, where I say, look, you know, you are taking away a learning opportunity by what you're doing. And you all as a class agreed collectively that these three rights are the rights that every student has, including yourself as a, as a student. And so if you are taking that right of learning away, it's my job as a teacher to ensure that I find a way to engage with you that allows the rest of this class to continue to learn. And we will, you know, circle back around with you and sort of deal with that when it, when it happens. And so that's been sort of something that I've been trying to really instill in my classes. And so I think it depends. I think it's a situation, student-specific way in which I I recognize the different teaching styles that I think I have. I think all of us have some variation of all of them. And so I can't really pinpoint one specific, but I definitely gear more towards the student side, the student centered side of things, um, mm -hmm. because I think that's where I get the most bang for my buck, if you will. And I think I get a lot more buy-in when students feel like they get, they have their own buy-in, they have a voice. So. Absolutely. This is one I'm always curious about because there's periods where there'll be discussions about what type of teacher you are. And some people will be like, well, I'm kind of like a director and other people are like, I'm a facilitator. <laughs> and there's like all these different words. And when you look at the teaching style from Moss and Ashworth, I just find it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot wow. of the teaching that I've experienced has been definitely more teacher centered. And okay. I hated that. Wow. And I mean, I'm only 30 and definitely a lot has changed since I've graduated high school in 2008 that I learned the most when it was student centered. And just mm. thinking about those classes that I had that I actually learned, mm -hmm. they were using definitely like self-teaching, learner initiated, learner designed, and the style of teaching didn't even come into existence for me until I was in graduate school mm. when we were having these like intense in-depth conversations and I've just been thinking this entire time when you've described your experiences throughout life and how you had this unique opportunity to kind of go through life and then become a teacher. I've always wondered why aren't more programs actually like a five, six year program where it's like a bachelor's and master's combined where you're mm. required to do like an extensive student teaching for a longer period of time. And then you have to go back for a year or two to do like immense reflection and then like one final teaching experience just to like see your growth and go through that actual reflective state that you get essentially thrown into. Right. And whatever happens, happens. Yeah. You know, that's, that brings up a whole other topic on a podcast of, you know, just based on the national teacher shortage that we're experiencing. And, you know, it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's already, I think complicated and convoluted enough, you know, just in the sense of my experience has been, and again, this is all coming from a, from a lens where I have life experience, but then also trying to, you know, open that lens a little bit broader to think, you know, you know, so why, if I was coming right out of a 
an undergraduate program, getting into a teaching program, you know, how would I have responded to this at that age? And it's hard to reflect because I think, again, the experiences that I've had leading up to where I'm currently at, you know, it's, I, I couldn't say, like I said, I just know for sure that there's no way I could have been in the teaching profession at 25, 26, 27 years old. I just think that there was still too much for me um, that I needed to experience and wasn't ready for whatever that reason was. I don't know what it was at the time. I just, there was a feeling, a gut feeling in me that I just knew that. And, you know, the idea of understanding that I don't think uh, credential programs do enough for the real big issue that we all face in a classroom is classroom management. Absolutely. You know, that's the biggest thing. It's like you can throw curriculum design down our throats. You can throw all these components of, you know, you know, the importance of having this and that and structure and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is teaching is so much about classroom management and being comfortable with chaos and understanding. And again, that's where for me, I think I needed to go through my own personal chaos, my mm-hmm. own personal sort of trials and tribulations to sort of understand and appreciate what classroom management is and what classroom management is not. And for me, classroom management is not about dictating. It's not getting up there on a soapbox and telling people what I know and what I don't know. It's really engaging in my audience, understanding my audience, understanding who who it is that I'm really trying to engage. And, and that's my responsibility as an educator. And that's what took me a while to recognize that. It really, you know, helped me, you know, coaching at a young age, you know, and seeing uh, what it's like to engage in a, in a group of individuals who, again, wanted to be there, you know, which is different and like, oh, okay, well, teaching couldn't be that bad. Well, and then having a mentor, a coaching mentor who really recognized like, yeah, well, it's not the same thing in the classroom. These, you know, these kids on the, on the track are not the same as they are in the classroom because it's information and topics they don't want to learn versus stuff they want to learn and they want to thrive. So it's like, again, seeing that consistency across the board between the people that, you know, were really um, influential in my life. It's like, okay, seeing that pattern, like, Oh, okay. I see it now. It's really, I have to be comfortable first and i have to recognize what my triggers are first before i can truly engage in a classroom of students who are going to be pushing your buttons and they know what pushes your buttons before you do you know so that self-awareness that emotional intelligence kind of piece really comes into it and and so classroom management emotional social intelligence and awareness is not done enough in credential programs. And that's my personal opinion. I I can definitely agree. There's an art component to it. Quinterstedt, he had an article, I guess it was more or less him having a speech, but it's pretty much a transcript from his argument that we're missing the art of teaching. And in a lot of those credentialing programs, like we're kind of hinting towards, it's a lot of theory missing the praxis piece and that's always been the biggest issue which is kind of my curiosity it's like my i benefited the most from going to a student teaching experience in undergrad and not doing well but yeah i was lucky enough to go to graduate school yeah learn a little bit different perspective and then did it again and did well and now i'm a decent teacher i'm not great well hey i don't think i'll ever reach that I don't, I don't, I don't, don't think sell it's yourself future, short, Stephen. Don't sell yourself short. But what I what I picked up, what you just said, was I think it, it was really powerful. It's and I think it was, you know, getting into a situation, making a mistake, and learning from that mistake. Mm-hmm. If I think I heard you correctly, yep. and I'm totally extrapolating and paraphrasing a little bit there, but it's it to me like that was again the part where it was like I had to be okay with not being okay. You know, I had to be okay with not have not needing or wanting to be the smartest person in the room, you know? And sometimes I think 
Um, and I maybe, again, this is just my limited experience in the formal educational side, but I can look back and reflect on that there were definitely teachers that I think I had, and I'm sure you too, that they had to be the smartest one in the room. Oh, yeah. yeah. And in graduate school, that's really where I think it hit me the most was having instructors and professors who were human enough to recognize where they are helping us to learn information. They're not giving us the information. They're showing us how to get the information, how to gather, how to be good researchers, how to be good, um, you know, uh, stewards of, of learning, you know, to be take an active mm-hmm. participation. And I think that's for me has really defined another piece of my philosophy is the difference between students and learners where students are very passive and learners are very active and engaged in their process. And that's, again, absolutely. You no, know, you know, where, you know, it's, it's, I was okay with that. It's like, I learned more failing an exam than I did if I tried to cram and study to try to get useless content. And I don't say useless in the sense that it wasn't necessary, but it, I mean the sense that it's like, if I'm only studying for the test, how am I going to apply that? And that was the question that was always in the back of my head. It's like, yeah, I can do this, but I want it. I want to learn how to apply it. And that was my biggest thing with doing research. It's like, and reading research. And maybe you're the same way, Stephen, where it's like, oh yeah, this is all great, but how do you apply it? Like going to conferences, more times than not, it's like you can present research, you can present theories where that's all great, that all worked in a confined sort of Mm -hmm. really sterile environment with all these, you know, things kind of set, but how do you apply that to the real world? Because I can tell you right now that I'm sure you the same way. It's like, that doesn't work for my students. doesn't work for my population. Like I love the idea, but then that challenges me as an educator to be able to refine it in such a way and creatively, make that information more dynamic and fit it for what I need. Absolutely. It's all the stuff I learned in undergrad. Mm -hmm. Great, but it never connected. Mm. And it was also part environmental. I don't think that was just the right teaching environment. I don't think I was going to do well in the suburbias because I just Mm. don't think that fit my personality because a lot of that was pretty much fitting a mold. Sure. So like when I went to the city, it just connected more because it challenged you to think outside the box and those students demanded more Mm. because I I felt like they were more like learners than students. A lot of times teachers treat them like students, according to your definition, like students, a passive learner. Yeah. Or a lot of times with the groups that I had experience with, they were learners. They want to be engaged with it, but because of stereotyping and just perceptions on them, mm-hmm. the standards and accountability practices would be lower. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't really be school or education. Right. And it's just interesting. Yeah. And this is like our discussion. This is, this is why that I created this podcast was to yeah. actually explore a lot of the stuff that is going on. And your mm-hmm. situation is really unique in which your students have experienced so much going through the forest fires COVID-19, just like my students, but my students have also gone through so much. Right. right. I'm not saying it's only in certain populations and certain areas. It's all over. Right. Right. And just getting back to that human piece. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it just, and I really, again, goes back to what, you know, what you and I were kind of, you know, uh, just, you know, riffing on prior to the part of us going live. It was, you know, it's, it's just, cool that you're doing this because i think that's the first thing i I caught when i listened to your initial podcast was like man this this guy's really onto something you know and i really appreciate that you're kind of taking and taking a chance and diving in with both feet and just sort of testing that out and you know it doesn't have to be perfect and you know i admire that because i think all too often we want things to be perfect before we get started and that's still a challenge that I'm kind of working through personally with certain mm-hmm. things and the little, the little things that I'm working on from time to time, it's, you know, you know, I've always got something going on and, you know, something pulls me away from here and, you know, you've, you know, so I really admire that Stephen, that you've kind of taken this on and, you know, trying to give a voice to, um, to PE teachers 
specifically, but I think just educators in general, you know, um, giving them an opportunity and a platform to sort of just share their experiences. And it allows us, I mean, you're how many miles away from where I'm at? I mean, it's, you know, a couple thousand miles, right? So it's like, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of riffing about some really cool stuff that we're both passionate about. And, you know, I'm just, I'm excited to, to kind of follow along with, you know, kind of what you're doing and, um, you know, this opportunity has been, uh, you know, been awesome. So thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for taking the risk as well. Cause this is just a total just experiment as my dogs go nuts. Cause they heard something outside. <laughs> That's always the entertaining thing with living in That's the city. Awesome. I mean, I, that is awesome. I live in the same neighborhood that I used to teach in until I moved to elementary which is okay. another unique dynamic that I believe that a lot of teachers need to, you don't have to live where your students live, but just knowing the environment in which they grow and yeah. learn yeah. is very important, which was very beneficial to me in my transition teaching high school. But we've gone through the ringer with this. So any last words you would like to share with us before I go? Uh, oh, man, spiel? just... I don't know. I, I think, I think you, I think we've covered a lot and I think it's just that idea of continuously, you know, just being open, searching, striving, and, you know, being willing to, to take a chance, take a risk um, and, and learn from that, whether it goes the way you want it to go or not. Cause you know, I think a lot of times we tend to want to just focus on, you know, that we made a mistake, but then forgetting all the times that we were successful. And, you know, I think that is a, a valuable lesson that I try to just instill in not just myself, but my daughter and my students too. It's, you know, it's when sometimes we're faced with that adversity, it's think about all those times that we were successful before this, mm-hmm. you know, Absolutely. that can kind of help us get through that. So that's perfect good stuff. Well, we're going to leave it with that. So thank you for everybody who was listening. Thank you once again, Larry, for joining us. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. I know I love this conversation. Um, It's not often that I take risks to have conversations with people across the country. So this is amazing. Check out the resources I provided below. I'll definitely add some of the topics we covered in there as well as links to like Mostyn and Ashworth's styles of teaching, even Michael Quinterstedt's article, The Art of Teaching which I don't think that's the actual title, but there's more to it. Um, If you have any questions, please reach out to me. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, do it. My email is com. Feel free to email me. Please subscribe to the podcast. We're now on, I think, 10 platforms. Um, But goodbye for now. But until the next time, I'm just going to wish you peace and love. 